0: The first reading, Matthew chapter 27, verse 11 to 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and our, on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is God's word.
1: Some will know if you've been with us. Jesus has been on trial since the middle of chapter 27, excuse me, chapter 26, and are contrasted with many. But here then the contrast is between him, the innocent one, and the crowd, primarily. Is he on trial? Or actually, is it them? So two things. First, Jesus is known to be innocent. It's obvious. It's been piloted all the way through, all the way back in chapter 27, verse 4. Judas can say, I have sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. In this section, Pilate's wife says so, verse 19, chapter 27, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. And Pilate himself can ask uh, the people and the crowd, uh, verse 23, what crime has this one committed? None. He's innocent. Pilate knows this. Uh, If you take it back to the beginning of that section, he, Pilate, knows he's innocent. Verse 12 of chapter 27, Uh, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus gave no answer. Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. We know that Pilate hated the Jewish leaders There's no sympathy for them. And here we're we're told he knows their motives. Verse 18, he knew it was out of envy that handed Jesus over to him. Jesus has got a highly sympathetic judge in Pilate who will liberate him. He hates these Jewish leaders, but Jesus says nothing. Because he knows, he's told us, the scriptures have to be fulfilled. He's the innocent one, but he says Nothing. The contrast is that the crowd in, but in particular, but really all, all are guilty of murder. And not just any murder, the murder of the king. It's very striking whenever Pilate speaks, how he describes Jesus. Very striking. So, verse 11, look at all of Pilate's announcements. Verse 11, Pilate says, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king? Verse 17. Which one do you want to read? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Verse 22. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Whenever Pilate speaks, he says he's the king, he's the Christ, the promised saviour, the Messiah, he's the promised one. Whenever Pilate speaks, it's as if Matthew is saying, you do realise who we're talking about here, don't you? Before you put this man to death, can we just... Be clear. Pilate knows it, and yet Pilate gives the people a choice. Verse sixteen. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So, when the crowd asked them, "Which do you?" Excuse, when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, "Which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, or is Jesus, who is called the Christ? Are you for Jesus, or you're against him?" Which path do you want to take? Do you want to take the the, the worldly path? Here's Barabbas. He's a military ruler. He's killed lots of your enemies. He's a man of the sword. He's a man of action. He's a man who's got power in this world. Do you want that man or do you want this silent one? That's called the Christ. Are you for Jesus or against him? He asks the crowd. Are they against him? Verse 22, what shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Are oh, they firmly against him? Why? They shouted all the louder, crucify him. Pilate washes his hands. But the people say, golly, this is striking, isn't it? The people say, verse 25, let his blood be on us and on our children. there's a choice. And Matthew would want to say to us, look there's a choice that's timeless throughout the centuries which which do you for Jesus you're against him. The crowds very very obviously against him. Now we've just sung ashamed i hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers it was my sin that held him there. But uh, at some point some of us struggle to believe that. I'm not that. I'm not like the crowd. I wouldn't have killed him. I know I've done things wrong, but I wouldn't have killed him. I think we find it hard, I mean, just being honest, find it hard to think my sin is that bad that I would kill God if I met him face to face. But of course, the Bible insists that's true. That our wickedness is such that confronted with perfect goodness, we'd want, we couldn't stand it. We'd want to get rid of it. We struggle with that. It was my sin that held in there. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice. Are we as bad as the crowd? And I think that's why Pilate is here. Because Pilate stops us thinking we're not too bad. See, Pilate, he isn't the crowd. He isn't as bad as the crowd. Pilate looks upon Jesus and says, do you know what, There's this, this, he's, he's special, this one. And yet what does he do? Pilate, essentially verse 24, he, he saw he was getting nowhere, he insisted an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, I minister to this man's blood, it's your responsibility, nothing to do with me. He wants to take a step back and say, look, I, I, I'm neither for Jesus or against him, I, I'm just sitting on the fence here. But you can't do that. He can't claim he's innocent because his actions lead to Jesus dying. Are you with him or are you against him? Protesting innocence saves no one. It's only confessing guilt that could save you. Protesting innocence does nothing. He washes his hands, but he doesn't wash away his guilt. You need more than water for that. You know the uh, Nuremberg Trials uh, of 1945, when 21 leading Nazis went on trial. All very different. All account. You got the arrogant Hermann Goering, prisoner number one, who is uh, uh, clever and snarling and aggressive and combative uh, in the dock, so much so that the prosecutor uh, Robert Jackson resigned. He said, "I can't, I can't handle this man. He's just too clever. He's just too evasive for me." Snarling Hermann Goering, everyone hated. By contrast, you've got Albert Speer, remorseful. He was known by the press as the decent Nazi. He said, Yeah, we did wrong. I I you know I, I can see that. Oh, they're very different characters, one hateful, one decent, but they're all guilty. Because they're on the wrong side. And all sentenced. And we might think, well, I'm not really as bad as the crowd, am I? Well Pilate thought that. But he's on the wrong side. Our sin puts us on the wrong side. Jesus was innocent, but all are guilty. All are guilty. And that's why Jesus had to die. We don't like to think of it, but our sin is offensive to the Lord. Our sin is so ugly, we can never pay it ourselves. Again, I read this week, our sin is so ugly and so offensive, we need a substitute. Our sin is so ugly and so offensive, the only remedy for us was the death of an infinitely worthy divine substitute. Our sin is so ugly and so offensive that everlasting hell is an appropriate response Our sin is so ugly and so offensive. Jesus describes it in a parable as the unpayable debt of 10,000 times 20 years wages. Our sin is so ugly and so offensive that God gave in the Old Testament 1,500 years of law that people failed to keep because we needed people to fail it so repeatedly and for so long To reach the point at which we say, no one is righteous before the Lord. No one can do what's right. Jesus was innocent. We're guilty of offensive sin. So that's the trial. He was tried at our place. Jesus stood and faced accusation and condemnation. So that we may stand innocent before the Lord. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned, he stood. Let's pause for a minute.
2: Second reading is Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 to 42. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they'd crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down they kept watch over him there. Above his head they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left.
1: They mock him, but they speak far more truth than they know. Mockery is the theme, of course, of this section. Uh, Schwedt of Vicentius, of course, there is, uh, um, the, the, the bit of graffiti taken from, uh, the Palatine Hill in Rome, uh, a few years later, or century later. Alexamenos worships his God. What a sort of foolish God would die at a cross. What sort of donkey God would do such a thing, the mockery. Two things again, their great irony is Jesus is mocked as king, but he is. None of us enjoy mockery, whatever age it is. Be it in the playground and uh, a child mocks us and the others join in and we feel very alone. Be it as an adult, we're feeling the butt of the joke and others... Gang up on us. No one likes being mocked. Here Jesus is mocked. Verse 27, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. God, it could be a hundred odd soldiers. Do you want to be the only one in this room today where everyone else gathers around you and mocks you, mocks you? What do they do? They strip him and put a scarlet robe on him, so, showing his importance. They twist together a crown of thorns, probably vine thorns, yeah, about to 15 centimetres or so. The, uh, the thorns on them mockingly put this crown on his head. They give him a staff or a scepter on his right hand. And they kneel in front of him and mock him, Hail, King of the Jews, hail to you. And they're loving it. Because some of their colleagues probably were killed by Jewish freedom fighters and now they get to mock an enemy. This is Abu Ghraib. Centuries earlier. ah, we've got an enemy here and we can mock him and take our photographs and send them home. They mock him. The best commentary on this, of course, this section, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, there's There's barely a single verse, two verses maybe in the whole of this section of Matthew 27 that don't come from Psalm 22 or from Psalm 69. King David talking centuries earlier of his experience. Here is what Jesus felt, Psalm 22, verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them. They cast lots for my garments. Oh, he's mocked. And so verse 37, above his head, they place the written charge against him. Jesus is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews, everyone. How ridiculous, but he is. They mock him, but he is. The second great irony, he can't save himself, but he does save others. And so verse, uh, well, the mockery continues, really verse 39. Uh, Two robbers, pick it up from verse 38. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Oh, yes, you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers, the Lord, the elders, everyone of significance. You see, all are guilty. They mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. (laughs) Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. Of course, Christians were were familiar with this. I don't know about you, there's a part of you that would just that would just love the story to go slightly differently. At this point, Jesus, to say, all right, stuff it. To come down from the cross, administer a little bit of justice, uh, and then get back up and say, and still I'll die for the, for the sins of the world. We'd kind of love that to shut them up. We'd love that sort of God. We'd love that, wouldn't we? I think I said to some before. Someone told me recently they were reading uh, Acts chapter 7 to their son, where Stephen is killed. You know, Stephen, uh, one of the early Christians, killed by a hostile crowd. He's martyred by them. And he read this, this, my friend, he read it to his son. And uh, the son said, mm, I really wish Batman had been there. Because if Batman had been there, it would have gone kapow, pow, thrash. And uh, then it would have saved Stephen, and Stephen could have preached some more and, uh, you know, preach another day. And there's something very normal about that response, very human about it. We want victory. We want power. We want it now. We don't want weakness. But God didn't send Batman, He sent Jesus. And it had to be this way to fulfill the scriptures. And it had to be this way for Jesus to show his trust in his Father. The supreme irony of course comes in verse 42. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Yeah, they speak more truly than they know. He can't save himself, is not a physical can't. Because he could. Of course, he could jump down off the cross. It's not a physical can't, but he can't save himself. It's a moral can't, it's a divine can't, it's a saving can't. He can't come down if he's going to save others. He can't come down. No, he can't. But it's not nails. hold Jesus to the cross it's his love for the father and it's his love for us he can't come down, no, no, but it's not nails that hold him it's a loving I can't because he loves us he can't save others excuse me, he can't save himself he does save others
3: Matthew chapter 27. and to pick it back up at verse 42 and read through to verse 54. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, 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 lama sakbek which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, And offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. This is God's word.
1: Come to the death, and again, two things to notice he trusted God as he was forsaken, first of all. Striking what the leaders say, isn't it? The, uh, the leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the others, they mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, now, and we'll believe in him. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he wants him. Now. If, if, if you're God, it's now. There's something very human about that, isn't there? Uh, something very worldly or, or, or simple, I guess. Something within all of us says, okay, God, now. I, I need you to act now. I enjoyed the comment of John Calvin. It's contrary to the nature of faith to insist upon the adverb now. It's very worldly to say now, God. I'll trust you if now you Do what's required. If now you provide me with more work, now you provide me with more money, now you provide me with more relationship, now. If you do it now, that's okay. Jesus doesn't get now. Faith says, I'd like it now, but I trust you. I trust you for your timing. And here Jesus trusts his father. Verse 43, you've got to think that would hurt, wouldn't it? Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. Jesus, if your God wants you, he'll rescue you now. Nothing. Cause your, your father, you say, he doesn't want you. You've got to think that's hurting. All through Jesus' arrest, his trial, his disciples have failed him. Everyone's failed him, but he's had his father. He's prayed to his father. And yet at this moment, he's entirely alone. Matthew denies Jesus, doesn't record the consolation of one of the robbers turning to him. Even verse 44, the robbers heaped insults on him. Again, let me read from Psalm 69, the Bible's commentary on what Jesus was experiencing. Psalm 69, verse 16. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Don't hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. I looked for comforters. I found none. They put gall in my food, gave me vinegar for my thirst. He's alone. But he trusted God as he was forsaken. Verse 45, time slows right down from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. The hours are going to be counted now until the greatest act of wickedness and love that the world has seen. Darkness covers the land, yes, God's judgment as it always was upon the plagues and as predicted, it's God's day of wrath. And Jesus cries, verse 46, this, Matthew allows us here to have the Aramaic, the rest is all written in Greek, of course, the New Testament, but here we get Jesus' words as he said them, Eloi, Eloi. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now many will know, it's the opening line of Psalm 22. Because here is how Jesus felt. But it's not just how Jesus felt, it's how things were. He was forsaken. It's very horrible to be abandoned, generally. You feel very lonely, don't you? I remember years ago being in... Bucharest, I was staying with a family and pastor's family, and I was due to fly back to the UK that night and we were in town and we had a coffee and they oh, he just popped off to get something and he forgot me. A bit rude, isn't it? He just forgot me. I was in a city I didn't know, I couldn't speak the language, and I was due to fly out in three hours' time. Where are my bags? They're in his house. Where's his house? I don't know. It's all being abandoned. But far worse, of course, is to be forsaken by people you love. That's not just loneliness, that's misery. Being forsaken by those you love is far worse. Oh, we all know it in small ways. Every child knows when they've misbehaved and are sent to their room, they're cut off from the family, it's unpleasant. You don't like it. You want to be reconciled, want everything to be happy again. I don't like it when mum and dad are not happy with us. In a small way, forsaken them. If people we love walk out the door, it's miserable to be forsaken. And here Jesus is forsaken by his Father. The intimacy he's known with his Father is at this moment broken. God the Father abandoning. God the Son in Jesus Christ upon the cross. And we know why. Why? Why? Because at that moment, Jesus is bearing our sin. He's carrying sin. He's wearing sin. He's absorbing our sin. And it is, of course, at that moment that God takes the vast funnel and pours upon Jesus all sin. All the sins of humanity, all the anger, the jealousy, the hypocrisy, all upon him. All the selfishness, all the indifference, all the injustice upon him. The penalty for all the adultery, all the pride, all the greed upon him. And it is at this moment that Jesus is, as it were, wearing our sin. And so the only response the Father can give is to avert his gaze... Is to shield his eyes. It is to turn his back. He cannot look upon Jesus. He had to condemn and hate and reject that sin, which meant at this moment he had to curse and damn his son. If you want to know how the Father views your sin... You see it in his rejection of Jesus. You see it as he takes our curse, our wrath, our judgment, and it should shock us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Answer. So that those wicked sinners who should be forsaken are loved. That's why. But even in that, he trusts his father. He trusts God as he's forsaken. The Elijah confusion. And then Jesus, verse 50, cries again. I think you could say in one sense, verse 46, he he dies before he dies, as it were. At that moment, as he's forsaken, the father turns his face away. But verse 50, physically he dies. When Jesus cried out, Again, in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And then you get sin and death are conquered. That's the purpose of these strange commentary in verse 51 downwards. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's God declaring, okay, that, that over there, my son dying over there, here is what it means, everyone. The curtain in the temple which said, get out. The curtain in the temple, which said very simply, "No entry. You cannot come before the throne of God. No one can." That's what the curtain says. The curtain says danger. That's what the curtain says. You cannot come near. And as Jesus dies, of course, what happens is it's ripped, and you're welcome. You are now welcome. God says, just so we're clear, what's happened over there. Here's what it means over there. You're welcome. And then the strange incident of verses 52 and 53, the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life, they came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. What is that? It's the death of death. It's the consequences of sin being rewound it's as if at this point God takes the video recording of humanity let's go back let's just take where we are now and, and rewind things back to the Garden of Eden and say death does death doesn't rule anymore it's the death of death here it's why the dead are raised to life as a symbol of that sin and death are conquered by this death. And you can live forever by trusting in him. He trusted his father as he was forsaken. And sin and death are conquered.